Hello, I'm Patrick Schmidt and welcome to the Drinks Business Podcast. You may disagree, but it dawned on me this month that fine Bordeaux is back in fashion. After years of so-called Bordeaux bashing from the likes of fine wine merchants, traders and critics, towards the end of this year, I've noticed that the negative voices seem to have quietened, and in their place, the region appears to be attracting praise. Indeed, Cru Classe Bordeaux was one of the best performers in the LiveX Top 100 Fine Wine Power Brands Report for 2023, and this included labels from Sauterne, which for a long time have appeared unloved. And just before this, a reputable London-based fine wine merchant told me that affordable Bordeaux was their best seller right now. And just after that, I saw that American rapper Jay-Z had chosen Bordeaux for his birthday bash, staying at one prominent property, but touring others to taste their wares. Now, I do know that Bordeaux didn't exactly enjoy a stellar en primeur campaign in the spring of this year. And I also know that the region has made the headlines for agreeing to remove 10,000 hectares of vines because it can't find a market for their grapes. So what's the reality? Is Bordeaux in vogue or am I imagining things? Here to tell us what it's really like in the region right now is DB's highly respected Bordeaux correspondent, Colin Hay. So, Colin, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. And just to start with, could you give us a bit of a taste in your own view uh, of what the mood is right now uh, in Bordeaux? Well, it's it's interesting because because I as I heard your 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 languid introduction, I I, I thought a lot of Bordelais would very much like to hear that, and I think it's I think broadly speaking, it's right. But what strikes me immediately is it's not exactly how most people in Bordeaux think about the situation in which they find themselves today. They would immediately say that the market conditions they face, certainly the courtier and certainly the negotiation, but the properties too, I think, would also say that the market conditions they face at the moment are the most difficult they have ever been. But I think what you describe in a way is a return to Bordeaux which might actually almost be explicable in terms of those difficult market conditions, that in adversity we return to at least some elements of what Bordeaux has has always been able to provide and what Bordeaux has typically been able to provide is quite good uh, value for money, rapport qualité-prix, as the French would call it. Um, And in, in a context in which people are suffering, Uh, and are reining in their consumption, I think it's maybe not surprising that well-priced Bordeaux is doing relatively well. Or another way of putting it is, if it's tough in Bordeaux, it's tough everywhere else as well. When you say the value element, is that relative to other fine wine regions? I think it is, and it's kind of interesting, this, and and in fact, you you talked about Bordeaux bashing. Bordeaux bashing, for me, is often associated with en primeur, and you also mentioned a not very successful Bordeaux 22 en primeur campaign, despite the fact that the wines were probably better appreciated than many people had thought they might be before the campaign began. So it wasn't a question of the quality of the wine, it was a question of price, as, as, as it often is. The problem with en primeur is it produces a focus on price every year and typically produces, because the prices aren't seen to be good enough, a form of Bordeaux bashing associated with the prices not being good enough. 
But actually, that's a kind of price disciplining mechanism. That kind of annual round of Bordeaux bashing is a price disciplining mechanism in a way. And it's a price disciplining mechanism that really doesn't exist in any other region because there isn't so much transparency about price. So the, the kind of disadvantage of, of on Primeur is everyone focuses on price, number one. And number two, if everyone focuses on pricing, then you get kind of bashing linked to pricing. Um, but But maybe the bottom line we should remember and the bottom line is that for I know 10 to 30 pounds a bottle Bordeaux is highly competitive there are a large number of wines which are very well made uh, and very attractive to consumers uh, and it's it's really only once you go above that bracket that you get into an area in which there's there's more kind of um, there's more kind of, there's more kind of competition so I, th I think Bordeaux represents good value for money yes in comparison to other regions no. So two things there. I think it's really interesting. When I mentioned the reputable merchant uh, saying that the affordable Bordeaux was their best seller, they were in fact talking exactly the sort of price category you mentioned, 10 to 30, 40 pounds. Mm. Um, and I think Bordeaux does offer value there. But can you give me a little idea about where one would go to value and any, any names yeah. or producers or... Well, I mean, one. Could, I mean, maybe we'll we'll come to that. I think we one could almost do that appellation by appellation. But but I think I think one of the reasons. I mean, so there are historic reasons why Bordeaux has has typically produced good value wines in that kind of category. Not the least of which being is there's a large number of producers who produce a large amount of wine, a large volume of wine, and they're in competition with one another. Um, I mean, another good example, actually, and it's kind of interesting, this, is what happened to the Cru Bourgeois classification. We think of the Cru, Cru Bourgeoisie, if you can call them that. It's, it's a bit unkind to call them that. But anyway, um, let me call them that for the time being. Um, what happened to the Cru Bourgeois classification, you might recall, was it was a three-tier classification. And there are all kind of complications with having a, a competitive hierarchical system of classification. So they got rid of the two tiers and it became a one-tier classification. You either qualified or you didn't. The effect of that was to produce massive price competition amongst Cru Bourgeois wines, and which meant that the average... Uh, the average price to the consumer of those wines kind of dropped to something in the kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of 10 to 20 pounds a bottle kind of range. Um, and, and actually, almost all of those, well, now they have a three-tier classification system once again, but the Cru Bourgeois Exceptionnel and Superior wines aren't any more expensive really than the Cru Bourgeois wines themselves. And they represent fantastic value for money often, particularly in strong vintages. So... 18, 19, 20, which are the kind of vintages you can probably find. You can even find in British supermarkets, actually, some of these wines. Uh, and and at £15, £20 a bottle or whatever, I reckon those represent pretty good value for money. I think also there are appellations like Pessac Lyonion, for instance, which by virtue of it being a little less prestigious, a little le well, maybe not less prestigious, but less less well known for being prestigious than perhaps um, the Appellation Margot Saint-Julien Poyac, Saint-Emilion Pomerol. Uh, those, those typically are more expensive. But in Pessac, I think for 10 to 30 pounds a bottle, 10 to 40 pounds a bottle, definitely you can find a range of very, very attractive, well-priced uh, well wines, uh, red and white. Um, Carbonia Blanc, for, exist for, for instance, uh, La Tour Martiac, red and white. 
uh, Diffusel is maybe pushing towards 40 pounds, or, or I guess. But there's a, there's a large number of wines there that are very attractive. Uh, some of uh, Jacques Lourton's wines, uh, La Louvière, White and Red, Coins Lourton, even uh, Class Growth. Uh, these these are these are these are great wines, and they're they're very affordable. I think. The other point you mentioned, the old Bordeaux bashing around price and Prima, particularly this year where we saw quite large increases from yeah. some of the more confident uh, estates perhaps. Um, I'm often told that when a Prima campaign comes out, even if it attracts the sort of bashing, I suppose there's the idea that there's no such thing as bad publicity. It puts a spotlight on the region, it gets people talking about it, and what it might not do is sell a lot of very young wine that appears overpriced to what's on the market. Hmm. but it might provide a fillip to sales to things that look relatively affordable on the secondary market. Is, is, is there some truth in that? There is, but again, it's kind of complicated here. I mean, on Prima now, partly by virtue of of behaving in a way which encourages Bordeaux bashing, i.e. increasing, with the, the exception recently being the 2019 vintage you might come back to, which was which was seen to be well-priced. Every other vintage since then has seen to be overpriced and has generated Bordeaux bashing. The effect of that is a reduction in the number of wines that actually sell through largely in, in on Prima and rely on on Prima. And actually, most of the wines that you're talking, or that, we're, or that we're talking about in the category 10 to 30, 40 pounds a bottle, actually don't rely that extensively on, or they certainly don't rely on selling out on Prima. Um, and, uh, and so, but they are also reputationally associated with Bordeaux. And if on Prima produces Bordeaux bashing, then they feel that they suffer from that. Um, the... But it's kind of interesting that that idea that kind of all all publicity all publicity is good publicity. There is a bit of a sense that actually once again Bordeaux remains the principal focus for most wine lovers of wine lovers attention. And I don't mean that they love Bordeaux more than they love any other region. But the other regions that they love, they love kind of in relationship to Bordeaux. Bordeaux doesn't go away, and the more people talk about Bordeaux. And, and indeed, the more frustrated they see, they feel by Bordeaux, the more they feel that they kind of have a right to be able to access Bordeaux at affordable prices. And actually, if they think that these 100 or so wines which sell on Primeur are overpriced, then they're maybe more likely to return to those that they don't regard as exploiting the system that sell less through on Primeur uh, and that do remain very good value for money, even in a context in which some top-end Bordeaux looks uh, looks insensitive to market conditions when the 22 uh, campaign took place, I guess. And on the subject of market conditions, what do you think was the cause, other than maybe a perception that the wines were overpriced, that meant that the most recent campaign wasn't a success? Um, well... It's interesting. I think. I mean. I think you have to sort of follow the process through from 2019. So the 2019 vintage was sold in the context of COVID. People in Bordeaux had little idea what the market conditions were actually like, and it probably turns out that the market conditions, at least for selling Bordeaux in 2019 as a vintage, were better than they had assumed they were. So prices probably on Primo release prices took more of a hit 
in the 2019 vintage uh, than, than in one sense, sadly perhaps, with the benefit of hindsight, might have happened if they'd known better the market conditions. But that was very good, and indeed very, very beneficial. It breathed new life into On Prima at a time when people were becoming increasingly cynical about whether On Prima was actually working as a, as a mechanism or not. The difficulty with On Prima, to some extent, is the top chateau had, have become, had become, certainly have become accustomed, but it might be coming to an end, to the leading negotiant taking 100% of their allocation. So essentially, the chateau would split up the wine they were bringing to the market, and they would offer it to their negotiant, their favoured negotiant, their, fa their fa favourite negotiant would get the biggest allocation, etc., etc., etc. Those negotiants would feel obliged to accept the offer and to take the allocation in its entirety. And that meant that the chateau was bearing no financial risk whatsoever. The, the wine was sold. The negotiant paid for it. It was their responsibility. Now, if they had difficulty selling it, then it was their problem. But presumably, as far as the shadow work is concerned, as long as the negotiant took their allocation, there was no problem. Uh, it's, thereafter, it's the negotiant's fault. So to some extent, the problem with On Prima has been that properties have been able to pass the risk onto uh, the negotiant. The negotiant bear the risk, not the property, as long as the negotiant take the allocation. And that generates a tendency in which the property pushes just a little bit too far the price that it thinks it can set for the wine. Now, but what's interesting in 2022, the 2022 vintage released last year in last year's On Primeur, and potentially the 2023 vintage to be released uh, in the summer of this year, or next year rather, uh, the, 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 the question is whether that will continue. What has changed is the cost of capital, the cost of borrowing. So the negotiation were buying their allocations even last year, I mean the year before and the year before that, they were buying their allocations typically by borrowing. But if they were borrowing at 1% interest rate, 2% interest rate, something like that, then, then they weren't taking too much risk even if they couldn't sell it all through. Uh, but now, in a declining market conditions and with the cost of borrowing and inflation both much higher, the economic situation is very, very different. And we're beginning to see, as we saw in the 2022 campaign, and as we might see much more in the 2023 campaign, depending on prices, is negotiation saying, sorry, I'm not going to take that allocation. What I will do is tell you how many cases I have pre-sold and I will buy a little bit more than that, but no more than that. Uh, and that and, and how much I buy depends on the price that you release at. So the bargaining position between the negotiant and the property through the courtier is changing. And, and in anticipation of that, I think the courtier are telling the properties and the properties are discussing amongst themselves. There's a kind of realization that they might need to behave differently. Now, it's not to say they will behave differently. It's too early to say that. But I hear lots of those kind of conversations uh, going on. What do you mean by behave differently, Colin? What I mean by behave differently is a almost a symbolic and a significant recalibration downwards of on prima release prices. Um, now, it's far too early to say that this will happen, and but I'm delighted to say this now because in one sense, if my friends in Bordeaux listen to this, then, they, then they're hearing once again an argument, which is that this is what they should be thinking about doing. So 
some properties and some conversations I've had with Negociant and also Courtier would suggest that a something equivalent to what happened in the 2019 campaign is now required if the 2023 on Primer campaign is not to be a disaster. Um, that sounds quite reasonable to me. Whether, and, whether that means that properties will engage in that, we'll find out. But one thing is interesting here. What, what, uh, what happened in 2019, if I recall rightly, was some leading properties um, went went by, by it's the kind of phrase which you went early what does that mean that means they they set their release price and released to the market right at the beginning of the campaign and in so doing gave a price signal to other properties that this is what they thought was required if i recall correctly cheval blanc was one of those mm-hmm. and so cheval blanc I mean, and it was part of it was part of a kind of strategy of almost kind of re, not so much rebranding Cheval Blanc, but kind of replacing Cheval Blanc back in the market in a particular kind of way. And it was very, very successful indeed, not least because it was the antidote to Bordeaux bashing. It's like we will behave well. We will we will behave well for ourselves. We'll do something which 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 works for our strategy, but we will also do something which will show to other properties what we think is required and what should be done in the 2019 uh, or for the release of the 2019 campaign. That could happen again, and we could see some properties. I'm not, I'm not talking about Cheval Blanc, but 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 properties. Releasing early with a significant discount vis-a-vis uh, 2022. If that were to happen, then the campaign would get off to a good start. And if the campaign gets off to a good start, then it then, then it has the opportunity to con- continue uh, in a in a positive uh, mode. If it gets off to a bad start, then we've had it. The on premier campaigns don't get better. <laughs> so. And presumably, what you were saying about the negotiations not uh, facing higher costs of sitting on stock, tying up cash. Uh, it would be the same for the producers, who are already uh, sitting on high amounts of stock. Yes, but the question, to some extent, for the producers is whether they realise that some of their negotiation might turn down their allocation. Mm. Uh, if you're a producer, I mean, <laughs> I've got some in my head, but I couldn't possibly name them. Uh, so <laughs> you might think so. I couldn't possibly comment, kind of thing. Um, some of these producers have a history now of almost exploiting the extent to which they know that the negotiants are likely to take their allocation. Uh, and that's that's fine for them as long as the negotiants do take their allocation, but the moment they stop, it hits them in the face. It's like, it's like banging your head against a brick wall once, as it were. And I, one hopes that they will anticipate that that is a possibility even a likelihood, and they will modify their behaviour and their pricing accordingly. We will see whether that, that happens or not. And it's, it's too early to say it's not been decided, it won't be decided by me, clearly. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I, 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 talk, I, I talk to people on Laplace, and I think what it's nice to be able to say today is that this early in the process, that's exactly the conversation I have whenever I'm in a room with anyone from Bordeaux at the moment. It's the first thing they want to talk about. Talking about the Bordeaux chateau and the negotiation and the system, what role or impact do you think 
um, on this spring on Primeur campaign will the autumn campaign that's just wrapping up now will have bearing in mind it hasn't been the sellout success that previous or Bordeaux campaigns have been well I think that's very interesting too I mean this is I mean one tends to think of and I think Bordeaux tends to think of these as entirely separate things I mean it, it's also true that quite a number of Bordeaux properties, including some of the ones that produce those famous bottles of wine that we've been talking about here between 10 and 30, 40 pounds a bottle, feel that they're kind of crowded out of Laplace's interest by virtue of all Bordeaux. I don't, I don't think that's true, in fact, not least because the volumes of all Bordeaux, of non-Bordeaux on Laplace are, are tiny in comparison. Um, but... Um, but what we have seen, I think, for the first time is a sense that the Orbordo campaign and its difficulties are setting expectations in Bordeaux for the Bordeaux en primeur campaign. So, so in a sense, the, um, the March, sorry, well, the, the 2022 Orbordo campaign was not a success. The September releases were much less, or the autumn releases, or Bordeaux, were much less of a success than the previous year. The two things together provide powerful evidence and a strong argument that Bordeaux properties need to think about the 2023 campaign differently. And I, I think in that sense uh, that the, the link is being drawn between all Bordeaux and uh, on, on Prima. But there are significant differences, as, as we've discussed before, I think. Um, um, the All Bordeaux campaign is maybe less price sensitive in the sense that people don't say, do I buy this wine or that wine, um, this wine from Napa or that wine from Spain, uh, which have the same points from leading critics. Uh, well, which do I buy? Well, you'd always buy the Spanish one because it's a lot cheaper. Um, so, this, but, but that's not how it works. Uh, All Bordeaux is the moment where both of these wines are released but the buyer of one is not necessarily the buyer of the other, and the comparison is not is not made between them in that kind of a way. Uh, Bordeaux en primeur is much more like that. So do I buy um, Ponte Canet, or do I buy Smith Haute Lafitte, uh, or do I buy uh, Beau Séjour, or what do I buy? There's there's a kind of there's maybe an idea. I'm going to buy one of these. Which one do I buy? That's that that's slightly different, I think. Um, so so we can't directly draw lessons one to the other, but I think lessons about the market conditions we can draw. And what's clear was that market conditions in the autumn were significantly worse, even than those that Bordeaux faced when when it last released wines through on Prima for the twenty twenty two vintage. And Colin, on that, what what do you think is the cause of this? Should we is this is this about uh, uh, overstocking in China and maybe similarly also in the US I mean yes I mean point anything there's lots of things the Chinese market is crucial to this and the Asian market more broadly uh, and it's interesting that if you look at Bordeaux Chateau that have become because there was high demand for them 
quite reliant on the Chinese markets, these chateaux have become very, very active in organising tastings, in presenting the wines, in, in trying to reconstruct their market and broaden their appeal and all the rest of it. And I, I think in some, in some cases, I think particularly of Bechevel, for instance, it's worked fantastically well, but they work really, really, really hard. And it's one of the few wines that released and sold through Bordeaux 2022 very, very well. So a lot, lot, lot's bound up with the, the ch- Chinese market. And the reason for the, the absence of demand or the, ab- the relative absence of demand in the Chinese market are kind of complex. And I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a specialist on that. And there's a number of factors uh, involved, not least uh, to do with the idea that the Chinese, that the, the, the Chinese government is actually interested in the construction of domestic fine wine uh, production as well, and is less enthusiastic about uh, about a kind of Bordeaux-China kind of relationship and all the rest of it. There's a whole whole variety of factors. I think, however, the game changer is more significantly just the cost of capital. Actually, that we are for the last. 20 years or so, we have been in a situation which, which kind of actually kind of endured all the way through the global financial crisis and now the other side to some extent, um, and, and even through COVID, which is of low interest rates and low inflation. Low interest rates and low inflation and asset appreciation. I mean, asset fine wine is is often regarded as an asset. It's appreciated very significantly in value over that period of time. And that was sustained by the combination of low costs of borrowing and low inflation. We're now in a situation in which we have neither uh, for the first time in that period. And that changes fundamentally the economics of, uh, of, of releases. I mean, put very bluntly, if you can buy discounted wine in bottle on the secondary market, then why are you very interested in buying on primeur? Um, and that's the kind of difficulty that we, the, 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 the properties face as they begin to think, if they're not already doing so, they begin to think about their release prices 2023 vintage. Yeah, I mean, the environment for tying up cash couldn't be worse. Exactly. What does this mean for en primeur? I mean, there's a bigger question I would have thought for the for the very nature of releasing a wine or, or encouraging people to buy a wine before it's even been bottled. Well, I mean, essentially the argument for buying en primeur has always been that this is the cheapest... Well, two things. It's, it's the moment in which you can guarantee, you can guarantee being able to acquire it. Uh, and for many consumers in many countries in the world... That's not an insignificant thing. I mean, actually, you can't just search on the internet and find a bottle of X vintage Y uh, and expect to be able to get it at anything resembling what was the market price on on release. That's that's a relatively rare thing, and to some extent, that even remains the case, even if, as it were, the um, the the official market price, if you were a, if you were a broker or a trader for the wine, uh, hasn't moved much in time. It's still actually quite difficult to be able to say I want Chateau Dison 2010 or whatever, um, and to be able to get it for something resembling its quote unquote market price. Um, so that the, there's that. So there's the idea that on primeur is good because you know that you've got your case. Um, that kind of thing. That that continues to be the case. But the second thing that makes on prima work is the idea that 
you're buying it at the cheapest point you could ever buy it. And sadly, over time, that has become less and less the case. Now, that began in good market conditions. So essentially, partly because the properties were able to pass the risk onto the négociant and not bear the risk themselves, they got kind of more of the slack in the market. They were able to kind of capture that back um, in a way. And now they need to give some of that back to the consumer. As I say, they did that in 2019. They need to do it again. And maybe they need to become habituated to doing so. If they were to do that, they would please more people. And we would move beyond at least that form of Bordeaux bashing. But it's, but it's, I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's easy to describe the problem. It's uh, um, it's not necessarily easy to see it being resolved. Now, Colin, switching to the other end of the market. So we're talking about what here, the top 2% or so of, of, of volume production in Bordeaux. The other end, uh, I mentioned the vine removal scheme that's been sanctioned, financed indeed, by the French government. Um, what's the, the reason or the thinking behind removing productive established vineyards? The problem is simply the lack of demand and the the financial plight of the producer of wine for VRAC, who may well be receiving a euro a litre or two euros a litre or, or, or derisory subs if they can if, if they can sell. Um, one needs in one sense to remember, okay, the world was very different, but uh, um, France's, and it's the same of Italy too, France's vineyards were essentially constructed, uh, or planted, to produce great quantities of wine when wine was a safer thing to drink than water. Uh, and France was an agricultural economy. An agricultural worker received... Uh, in a sense, as part of their compensation for employment, or at least salary, but a litre and a half of drinking wine a day. But there was the equivalent of water, and it was 5% alcohol or something like that. Now, that's a big production capacity. Uh, France has maintained something resembling that production capacity over time. Um, indeed, France returned to being the biggest producer of wine in the world last year but because Italian production dropped mm. because of global warming and the challenges associated with that, in a sense. Um, but the, the, the problem is that what France can sell now is premium end wine, not necessarily vineyard, and that's not necessarily produced in vineyards that we're producing a litre and a half a day for agricultural workers. And so it's not surprising uh, that, um, that we end up in a situation in which it is no longer financially viable to maintain that, and the best solution to some extent is, uh, is, is, growing up, uh, is growing up vineyards, which produces all kinds of upset, and one can absolutely understand that, but one can also understand the situation that produces that, that that, that kind of an effect. Essentially, Bordeaux is too big. Is there a, is there a size that, that it would manage to, to come down to where supply and demand would be better balanced? I mean, is 10,000 hectares enough? It's very difficult for me to say. I, I, I feel like that's almost beyond my, 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 my realm of expertise. I mean, I like to think I know a fair bit about Bordeaux, but I find that actually a very, very difficult question uh, to answer. Um, I think, I mean... What does strike me is that 
tragically in a way, even in the great expanse of 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 terroir which would not typically be seen as exceptional, the quality of winemaking has improved very significantly in the time that I've been tasting Bordeaux. And so I think actually there's a lot to be done, which is to try to kind of almost reconstruct a market which recognises the quality of the wines that are produced in some of these less august terroir and less august parts of Bordeaux. If that could be done effectively, then I think the... I'm not going to give you a number, but I think a, a, a greater hectareage of wine production would be stable and consistent. And I think to some extent that is the argument um, that Bordeaux producers are making, which is don't grub up our vineyards too quickly. Let's try and construct a market uh, for, or reconstruct a market uh, for these wines, which are of uh, a quality greater than they are often assumed to be, I think. So is there a trend for some of the owners of great crew class A chateaus properties to expand operations some of the satellite appellations perhaps to, well, to, yes, to try and create there things. Is. Yeah, there is. But again we're talking about relatively small production there in the grand scheme of things. I mean this is I mean this is these are not I mean this is not um, saving uh, vineyards from being grubbed up. We're not talking about the same thing here. But yes, and this is very good news. I think I think what we see, I mean, also very, have small producers producing great wine on great terroir and terroir which are now much better regarded or are better able to produce high quality wine than they were than they were previously. I think so. Um, so some of the satellite Saint-Emilion appellation, Côte de Castillon uh, and Fronsac and Canon Fronsac uh, and, and, and Lussac and, uh, and so forth, are typically were areas in which it was actually very difficult to produce fully ripe um, Merlot, for instance. Um, certainly uh, Merlot and Cabernet. Now that is much less the problem and these these terroir really reveal their quality. They're often terroir which are actually not entirely dissimilar from the hallowed plateau of Saint-Emilion itself. So you get wines which are a fraction of the price and have a slightly different kind of characteristic, but which have many of the qualities that if you tasted them in Grand Cru Classe Saint-Emilion from the plateau uh, would wow you. Um, and and so I think I think there are a lot of opportunities of that kind, and particularly in those kind of Appalachia. I mean, and indeed I hope to write more on, I, I think particularly Fronsac and, and Côte de Castillon are, are excellent examples of Appalachia which the consumer is less aware, well aware of but actually, there's a lot of Saint-Emilion and indeed Pomerol producers who are now very interested in those Appalachians. The quality of the vinification is very high. They're often consulted by the same consultants who work for hallowed properties in Saint-Emilion and Pomerol and so forth. And, um, and with very well-trained winemakers making very good and relatively cheap wine. And could a warming climate perhaps benefit those areas that may have once struggled to ripen things? Like well, that? It has. I mean, it, it has. That's not to say that that doesn't produce many problems. It does. I mean, uh, and, the, and the problem is not so much climate warming necessarily as, if you like, climate weirding. 
Uh, it is just extremes. Uh, it's um, uh, it's 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 excesses. Uh, so it's it's gel. It's uh, sorry, gel. It's, <laughs> I'm talking French. Uh, it's yeah. it's frost. Uh, it's hail. Uh, it's it's extreme. Uh, um, it's extreme heat. It's extreme drought. Uh, it's extreme rain. Uh, it's it's everything in ex- in extremity. However, mildew. <laughs> mildew absolutely mildew. Massive, massive, massive problem. Um, and and the problem also is. Some of these things can be managed and some of these things can't be managed. The best way to manage what can be managed is to be very, very, very attentive in the vineyard and to be very lightning speed reactive. Mildew is it's about it's about treating in the tiny window of opportunity to treat. Now, if you've got a big number of people who work directly for you and have a contract that means that you can ring them up at four o'clock in the morning and tell them to treat, then you've got a good chance of reducing your mildew risk. If you're a small producer in the entre-deux-mer, then that's not going to work very well. So, so those who are already, as it were, relatively impoverished tend to suffer this, the, these dramatic environmental con- consequences uh, even more severely. However, if you can get your grapes to full maturity, which you are more likely to be able to do, uh, then global warming is, at least for now, an advantage on some of these cooler terroirs. Um, the, 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 I mean, it actually, it's true of the internal geography of Saint-Emilion itself. If you, it's not surprising that one of the hot spots in Saint-Emilion at the moment, just, just look at the critical acclaim uh, being lavished upon vineyards in this part of the Appalachian, is, is, is up by La Roque, uh, Croix de l'Abri, Rocheron, uh, three great properties very close to one another in an area that used to be described uh, rather rudely as the Saint-Estef of Saint-Emilion, by which they meant that it was difficult to get the grapes fully ripe. Now that's a big advantage, and this produces fantastic wine on, on, on high uh, calcaire um, terroir. No. And not unlike, not unlike Cote de Castillon and Fronsac, no. no. And connected with this and, 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 and the image of Bordeaux and, and, and changes taking place, what about the greening of production, by which I mean cleaner, more sustainable approaches? This is yep. not something we hear so much about from Bordeaux. I know it's taking place. I, it, is, it is taking place. I mean, the problem to some extent is that it's typically quite expensive in a way. And so it's very present in it's very present in Saint Emilion. It's quite present in Pomerol. It's reasonably present uh, throughout the Medoc, and it's and it's growing, uh, and it's actively encouraged. And the Cru Bourgeois uh, environmental regulations are raised each time the classification, the competitive reclassification, is redone, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, so at the top end, it's become normalised, and that's a very very good thing. Um, um, but it's typically a little more expensive and sometimes much more expensive. Um, the risk associated with mildew is typically greater because the treatments that you can use are more limited and you need to use the treatments more sign- um, just, just more time, basically, and there's more risk associated with it. Um, so uh, it's the general direction 
uh, and it's very pleasing to see. And I think you taste, you can taste the difference in those wines that have made that transition. Uh, I think, I think I can taste it very often, and uh, uh, and generally that reinforces a trend which I like to see, which is towards precision, clarity, brightness, fruit expressiveness, early drinking, softer tannins, and uh, and all the rest of it. The kind of things that one tends to want to see more of in Bordeaux, and that one has seen more of in Bordeaux in recent vintages. And I'm just wondering, Colin, in terms of where the value lies in Bordeaux, you've talked a little bit about areas, but is there a kind of sweet spot in terms of price? Is it is there is there a, is there a band or a window where you think Bordeaux really delivers relative to other uh, wine producing areas of the world? Um. <sighs> That's difficult. I mean, because in one sense, my response is to say that with a handful of exceptions, actually at almost any price point you could pick, if you were then to assemble on your table a bunch of wines of that price and and taste them blind without knowing the region, uh, then you would probably find that you were getting good value for money from Bordeaux. So I think actually the price, the 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 rapport qualité prix as the french would call it the ratio of quality to price is pretty good almost all the way up uh, in, in 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 bordeaux um i think to some extent that's because the medoc has always been part of this and medoc vineyards are relatively substantial um and and what that possibly means is that smaller production wines in Bordeaux are terribly good value because there's not very much of an economic gain for small production. Whereas if you go to other regions um, in Italy, Spain, Portugal, Burgundy, above all, there's a very strong correlation between the price of the wine, or there's a much stronger correlation, let's put it that way, between the price of the wine and the small size of the volume of production. But essentially, if you're a tiny Saint-Emilion or Pomerol producer, you're kind of in competition with with something at the same price point in the Medoc, which may be produced in five times the volume or whatever. Uh, And that possibly means that if there is a kind of sweet spot to be found, it's kind of there. I also think... Another way of looking at it, as I suggested, is if you if you can kind of map the terroir or just have a basic understanding of kind of uh, what the where, where your vineyard is placed, you can find some wonderful things which are just across the Appalachian border or whatever, um, or the continuation of the limestone of Saint-Emilion into Côte de Castillon, for instance, and there's some great wines there. So, so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, look in this price bracket particularly. I also think the price bracket kind of varies a bit depending on where you are. So I think the price bracket is a little bit lower if you're in the Grave and Pessac, for instance, at least now, partly because the vineyards tend to be relatively substantial in size, so they produce a reasonable amount of wine. And secondly, just because Pessac Lyonion is not as famous as its Medoc and Right Bank um, superstar peers, in a sense. And, and peers, they are peers, I think. So Pessac represents very good value, I think, too. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you, Colin. Now, lastly, I started with the idea of Bordeaux coming back into fashion. You may argue it never went out of fashion. It certainly mm. proved remarkably resilient and adaptable. Um, 
But changing it a little bit, looking ahead, do you see a bright future for Bordeaux? And I'm talking about the next year, three years. Well, I hope so, yes. And I think I do, um, but in in different kind of scenarios. Um, The scenario I would like to see, I suppose, is the market conditions, which are terrible at the moment, turn out to have been temporary, temporarily terrible, and therefore they become they become better in an enduring way once again. If that were to happen, I think we're back to a better situation. And if the effect of those terrible market conditions has been a kind of recalibration in prices towards what happened with the 2019 vintage, and that recreates the possibility of making on primo work, then that's a win-win for, for, for everyone. So that, that, would, that would be very, very nice to see. Um, second thing... And indeed, I could. You, my previous question was about value for money. There's one bit of value for money which I didn't mention, and I, I now feel guilty for doing so. So let me try and bring this back in. And that's something you mentioned right at the beginning, which is Sauterne, the return to Sauterne and Barsac. Um, and, and not just actually for for what Sauterne and Barsac are, are known for, so the wines which bear the Appalachian names, but also the Blanc Sec, uh, the white, the dry whites from, from this region are, are a work in progress and many of them are fantastic. So there's great value to be found there. And, and, if you think of yourself listening to this as just a little bit of a Sauterne or Barsac aficionado, then do try to drink just a little bit of it sometime because because you need to I don't know you need to sort of retake your vows every now and again. And if you retake your vows, you appreciate how great these wines are and how cheap they are for what they are. The yield of production of these wines is just minuscule, tiny, um, and these are. Classified growths for non-classified growth prices. I think so. I have optimism about Barsac and Sotel. Uh, it's for the first time in a very, very long time there is a return to their qualities. The quality of the winemaking is is, is very good. Uh, they've kind of worked a solution through to their own problems, and we're beginning to see that happening, and that's very good. Um, but even in a in even in the kind of pessimistic scenario so the market conditions remain tough which is possibly more likely than not i think what happens then is we do return to value uh, and the bottom line that we've been talking about all the way through this is that bordeaux represents not maybe not all of it and maybe not all of the time but the bulk of Bordeaux production remains very good value for money. And therefore, even in difficult market conditions, it strikes me, the consumer will return to Bordeaux. And in that sense, I'm optimistic. I will still have things to be writing about. Thank you, Colin. That's very helpful. Very useful analysis. And you're absolutely right. I think if one thing is to be taken out of this, it's to drink more Sotan. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. For more comment and analysis from Colin on Bordeaux, be it market trends or tasting notes, please visit thedrinksbusiness.com.